0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to North Shore Church. Welcome all the visitors that are here today. Uh, my name is Scott, and I'm an elder here at North Shore Church. And um, today we're going to be doing the reading from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the ministry of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been relieved to by the holy uh, apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me though, I I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be might now be made no, known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our lord in whom we have boldness and access in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him so i ask you not to lose heart over what i am suffering for you which is your glory Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you boldly this morning and we thank you for the, the gift of eternal life of the gift of life. Help us to live our lives to your glory and not our own selfish ambition. You give us free will, which we abuse so much of the time. Thank you for your grace that's poured out on us through the suffering, death, and resurrection of your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you for Paul's letters to us, Lord, that's as relevant then as it is now. Help us to not only love and believe the gospel, but to tell others about it. Something many of us, including myself, are weak at, Lord. Help us by your Holy Spirit to pour out our hearts today through this service and throughout the week. Give us strength when Satan tempts us in the many forms that he uses. Keep us steadfast in our faith and cause our hearts to be so in love with Jesus that we clearly see the sin that's in our lives, that that sin would drop us to our knees in repentance. Give us faith, strength, courage, patience, and confidence. I pray for this church, the bride of Christ, that you would protect it from anything that could get in the way of the ministries that you allow us to have here, Lord. Move us closer to be like the church of the New Testament. Draw us closer to each other, that we can lift each other up and pray for one another, to be in community with one another. We pray for those that are suffering here today from sicknesses, heartache, depression, financial problems, physical exhaustion, or any other storms of life that we experience on this side of heaven. We pray for this service today, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray for Pastor Duncan, that you would equip him to teach the truth from Scripture with boldness and authority, which comes from you. Give us a strong sense of the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear the message and that you would allow us to apply that knowledge throughout the week in each of our personal lives. Lord, we pray for what's going on in the Ukraine and all the senseless deaths that that war is producing, Lord. Come help and restore quickly, Lord. Please bring an end to this war. We pray for those families of victims from gunfire that's lately just ravishing the news. Our hearts go out to them, Lord. We just. Pray, God, that you would just bring a revival to this nation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, through our belief in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, inspire our hearts to seek you in in your word daily. Grow us both individually and together as we seek the peace of your presence. Help us to walk faithfully and fiercely after Christ, reflecting his love. May we always lift our progress up to you, who holds the honor and glory for who we are and what we do. Use our lives, Lord, to reach those who desperately need to know that you love them. We ask this in Jesus' name
1: and for your sake. Amen. We return this week to a series of messages from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We begin, as you just heard, chapter 3 today, where Paul continues to reveal to his church what God has done for them. Through the gospel, as we've said before, Ephesians is divided almost right down the middle, with the first half being, here's what God has done for you through the gospel, and the second half, and now here's how to live in response to that. So we're still in this first half. One of the great blessings of this gospel for this predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus is the fact that they'd been brought into spiritual union, not only with Jesus Christ, but they'd been brought into union with these believing Jews. Beforehand, they'd looked at the Jews as aliens and strangers, bizarre people with bizarre traditions, and now they're one with them. Paul has reminded these Gentiles that in Christ, believing Jews and Gentiles have supernaturally not only been united, but God has made a new humanity through his believing people in Christ, with Christ as the head. Adam is the head of the old humanity. The head of the new humanity is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Amazing what Paul teaches here. As Paul begins chapter 3, we see an example of something remarkable that Paul will do sometimes in his letters. This is one of the reasons why Peter, even Peter, says about Paul sometimes his letters are hard to understand. One of the reasons is because of what he does here in Ephesians, but he does it in other letters too. And by that what I mean is he begins to address a certain topic when he abruptly breaks off his train of thought and interrupts himself. He then breaks off into a different topic, sometimes for several verses, before he then returns to his original train of thought. He never loses the train of thought, but sometimes he has these digressions, and in 2nd Corinthians he has a digression that lasts for four chapters. So this is why Paul is sometimes not easy to understand. So this is a digression. Um, it tells us that Paul is not dictating these letters from a detailed outline. Because you don't have interruptions in yourself if you're not speaking with some degree of spontaneity in the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting in that sense. It helps us get a peek into what Paul's process was like as he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, dictated these letters. This particular interruption goes for about 12 verses. It begins in verse 2. Paul begins a prayer, and we know it because when he picks it up again in verse 14, that's what he does. He prays. So he begins with a prayer, but he breaks off the prayer. And we know that this is where he picks up again, because in both verse 1 and verse 14, the way he opens both verses is, for this reason. So he's clearly going back to reiterate what he started in verse 2. So after Paul begins this prayer, he breaks into this digression. And the digression is about his apostolic role in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. That's just what you heard read. Presumably, this abrupt change in course has been brought on as he's been thinking about this union between Jew and Gentile. We're not sure why. So, for this morning, Paul takes up the topic that we're going to talk about. This is the first eight verses of this. We're not going to get through the the whole thing about his role as an apostle to the Gentiles because that's what he's reflecting on. Now, you may wonder, well, what on earth good is that going to do for me? I mean, Paul had an absolutely unique ministry. How is it going to build me up to see his reflections on his ministry? Well, I think you'll find out that there's a lot here for you. There are three elements of Paul's gospel ministry that are highlighted here. The first is the validation of his ministry. The second is the foundation of his ministry, and the third is the mystery that's embedded within Paul's ministry. So the validation, the foundation, and the mystery attached to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So the first element of Paul's apostolic message that he's reflecting on is the validation of his ministry. And we get this actually from verse 1, where Paul is still thinking about this prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, That's where he breaks off. But even though this is still technically part of the prayer, it represents an absolutely crucial element of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. He mentions this more than once. So I'm including it because under the inspiration of the Spirit, I think this fits in with the digression, even though it's not part of the digression. So the question for us is, how do the words, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, how is that a validation of Paul's ministry? How does Paul being in jail validate or authenticate his apostolic ministry as being from God? That's the question. We see the answer in other places in Paul's writings, but the most dramatic is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Those of you that are familiar with 2nd Corinthians, you know that part of the problem that Paul is addressing in 2nd Corinthians is there were a number of preachers who'd come to Corinth that the Corinthians had taken quite notice of. They were very impressed with. But Paul says they're false apostles. And so there's this competition in the minds of some people between Paul and and these false preachers. So, Paul has to, because they've undermined his status when he wasn't around, Paul is working hard. To validate his ministry. He's trying to show them that his ministry is far superior than these false apostles. They're much inferior to him because they weren't genuine servants of Christ. Now what's surprising is, he could have done that in any number of ways. He could have said, I have planted more churches than them. I have worked more miracles than them. I have seen Jesus more than them. He could have listed any one of his credentials to indicate how he's better than these false apostles. But what he chooses to do, what he bases his claim on, that he is a genuine servant of Christ, as opposed to these false apostles, he cites his repeated and horrific sufferings for the gospel. That's the authentication of my ministry, Paul says. And so these, these sufferings, like being beaten with rods and being left for dead, and the anxiety and the, the pressure that's on him from being a church planner, in Paul's mind, it was his suffering that authenticated or validated his apostolic ministry. That's really important for you to understand to get to know Paul. Just as Jesus suffered, Paul's ministry is also marked by suffering. So here in Ephesians, Paul validated his call as an apostle to the Gentiles by reminding them in verse 1 that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Did you notice the wording there? He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now we know from Acts chapter 28 that Paul wrote this letter, and a couple others, from a Roman jail. Yet he doesn't say that he's a prisoner Of the Romans or a prisoner of the Emperor. No, though he was arrested, though he was detained by the Romans, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul knew that neither Rome nor the Emperor were the ones controlling his life. He was in prison ultimately because Christ had sent him there as a missionary. And we know from the book of Philippians that that was a good thing. Paul also says that he was a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. So he wants these Gentiles to remember that it's his calling, it's his desire to minister to Gentiles like them, that's what put him in shackles. Paul's trying to encourage these Ephesian believers by reminding them that his ministry to them was motivated by love and compassion and concern, and he proved that by going to jail on their behalf. So the first element of his apostolic ministry it is his sufferings for the Gentiles that authenticated him. A second element of Paul's apostolic ministry that he's reflecting on here is the foundation of his ministry. Now, and I used foundation last week, so I searched for a, a different term. I couldn't find a better one. There just was one element, one truth, one theological root that served to anchor for Paul, his content, his motivation, and the empowerment of his ministry, and that is the grace of God. It's not an accident that of all the apostles, Paul is known as the apostle of grace. So here, Paul cites grace as both the heart of his ministry and the explanation for his ministry. He says in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that was given to me for you. So when Paul thought of his ministry, he thought of it as a stewardship of God's grace, when he looks at it broadly. Now he talks about stewardship in his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter nine and Colossians one, so it's not uncommon for him to think about his ministry as a stewardship. By stewardship of God's grace, he means that he'd been entrusted with the administration or the management of God's grace to the Gentiles as revealed to them in his gospel message. That's a big task. That means that broadly Paul understood that his apostolic task is to administer the grace of God to the Gentiles. So grace is at the very essence, at the very root of Paul's ministry. This isn't the grace so much that God had given to him as an apostle, though we'll see that later on. This is the grace that's rooted in the gospel message to Gentile sinners. So grace is the heart. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end of Paul's ministry. His ministry is saturated. It's permeated, it's inundated with grace because at the heart of the message of the gospel is the grace of God offered to sinners through the death of Jesus, given as payment for sins because God is a just sin-punishing God, and Jesus took the punishment upon him for all of those who would believe on him. Those are important questions for us to think about. Notice that Paul says that this is God's grace that was given to me for you. So God gives Paul grace for them. That's a really important truth. God doesn't give grace, whether it's saving grace through the gospel, or grace of financial provision or wealth, or the grace of spiritual gifts, or the grace of some other blessing. He doesn't give it for the, solely for the recipient of the grace. God gives us grace so that, like Paul, we can give it to others. That's really important for us to remember. Ask yourself, what are some really clear expressions of the grace of God in my life? And when you get the answer, ask the question, how am I sharing those gifts of grace with other people? God gives his grace In order that it might be shared. If he has saved you by giving you the gospel, then there's an expectation that you are going to take that grace of the message of the gospel and give it out to other people. If God has gifted you in some other way, he doesn't give those gifts to you solely for your purpose, but to you and to whoever you can share them with. If he's done a magnificent work in your life, he expects you to share that for the encouragement of other people. Again, this might be the grace of material wealth that you can share with other people or spiritual gifts or just important truths that he shared with you. He doesn't just give them to you for you. He gives them to you for you and with whoever that he leads into your life that you can share them with. Whatever the expression of grace is, he always gives, gives his grace and he expects his grace to be maximized for his glory. And that maximizing happens as we spread the grace to other people. So spend some time thinking some time how you're doing in that area. Do you hoard his grace or do you see it rightly as something that you should be giving out to others? So where have I received grace and am I taking that grace and giving it to other people? That's what Paul did. That's his example. But grace is not only the heart of Paul's ministry, it's also the explanation for Paul's ministry. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here, Paul says first that his ministry is a gift of God's grace, but also a demonstration of God's grace. Paul consistently sees his ministry as a gift of grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he writes, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Grace of God that was given to him. Given the fact that it was his ministry that landed him in jail in so many different cities and brought on him all of his great suffering, Paul's claim that his ministry was a gift of God's grace is all the more remarkable. For Paul, receiving grace did not equate to an easy life or an easy ministry. That's not the grace of God. His life demonstrates that sometimes the grace of God can lead you to do some very difficult and very painful things. Does that truth fit in with our understanding of grace? Paul says, by his life, it should. In verse 8, Paul continues, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul never recovered. He never got over from the cosmic Irony of God's grace in making him a man who had killed and persecuted followers of Christ, making him an apostle to believers on whose behalf he would then suffer persecution. He never recovered from that knowledge. He never recovered from the fact that God took this Pharisaic man, who was an expert in all the intricacies of Jewish law, and he made this Pharisee the apostle of grace. Paul never forgot who he'd been before his conversion and the grace of God that transformed him into a new creation. He never left that behind. That radical transformation dramatically controls his sense of his own identity. Here he calls himself the very least of all the saints. Not just the least of all the saints, the very least. I am at the absolute end of the line, Paul says. He does this three times in his ministry. And each time in his ministry, as you get chronologically further along, his opinion of himself gets lower and lower. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, which is the first one he does, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And he goes on to say that, though that's true, he did work harder than all the other apostles. But he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So there's Paul, again, with his grace. Grace all the time. All grace. Finally, late in his ministry, near the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost not just the very least of saints. I'm the chief of sinners." So the longer Paul lived, the less impressed he became with himself. That's important. The smaller he becomes in his own eyes. He didn't hate himself. This is not some sort of self-absorbed inferiority complex. That's just an expression of pride. This is simply the result of the fact that the longer he lived and ministered, the more aware he became of the holiness and majesty and greatness of God, and in light of that, he became more aware of his own corresponding sinfulness. That led to his ever-increasing appreciation for God's grace in his life. The more you are unimpressed with yourself, the more you are free and able to appreciate the grace of God that saved you through what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches of Christ, the riches of his grace, are unsearchable. This is an amazing thing, especially this week when we've been exposed to the first pictures back from the Webb telescope. Some of you have seen some of those. Talk about an opportunity to worship. They send this thing a million miles out, and they see it with this incredible technology and it can see literally to the edge of the universe. It, it shows that there is an edge to the universe. It doesn't go on infinitely. It's amazing. What that means is that the universe is searchable. We can search the universe. We, we know broadly how many billions of light years it stretches or whatever time dimension you want to choose. The point of fact is that's searchable, the universe, The riches of Christ, mercy, and grace are unsearchable. Unsearchable. Too vast to be able to search. You show me a believer who is impressed with him or herself, and I will show you someone who has not spent nearly enough time in the shadow of the cross. You simply cannot be impressed with yourself when you truly understand who God is, who you are, and what he's done for you through the gospel. You cannot appear large in your own eyes when you realize how large the cross looms in your life, and that anything good about you, anything good coming from you, ultimately has little to do with you. Second element of Paul's apostolic ministry is God's grace, which served as a foundation of his ministry. A third element of Paul's apostolic ministry, and this is the one really that he spills the most ink on, here is the mystery embedded within Paul's gospel ministry. We have to remember that when Paul uses this word mystery, he's not talking about a puzzle or a vexing problem or something that we would say is mysterious. That's not. He uses this word in a very technical way. In the New Testament, a mystery is a truth that has been part of God's plan from eternity past, but has only been made revealed or disclosed with Jesus Christ. That's what a mystery is in the New Testament. These mysteries are eternal truths that had been hidden from God's people in the Old Testament. So Paul has already referred to one mystery in chapter 1. He says it's a spiritual blessing that God has given to believers. In verse 9 in chapter 1 it says, "...the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." It's a remarkable statement. It speaks to the mystery that God revealed that his purpose for history, centers on and finds its meaning in Christ Jesus. That was not known in the Old Testament, and Paul says he's revealed that. It's all about Jesus. Here in verse 3, we see another dimension of this mystery revealed in Jesus. Before giving us the content of the mystery, he tells us how he received this mystery. In verses 3 and then in verse 5 and 3, he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So this was given by revelation to Paul. What does that mean? Well, that means that Paul just didn't figure this out, okay? This was not as a result of hours spent in the Old Testament. That's not what this is about at all. This was a personal revelation to him by Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul recounts how the gospel itself that he preached was a revelation it was not the product of something that somebody else told him he says in verse 1 in galatians verse 12 in galatians 1 for i did not receive it from any man nor was i taught it but i received it through a revelation of jesus christ paul never discloses precisely how He got this revelation, whether he was somehow beamed up to heaven in a vision or a trance or something. We don't know. What we do know is that even though Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles, like those men, he had seen the risen Christ at his conversion, but also at other times. In Acts chapter 18, Paul had been facing a lot of persecution and a lot of hassle in Corinth, and he's getting discouraged, and it says in verse 9, and the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So the risen Christ himself appears to Paul in a vision, encouraging him to persevere, in Corinth. That's a revelation. So this mystery was personally revealed to Paul. In verse 6 he talks about the content of the mystery. What is it? The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. So this unique union of Jews and Gentiles was never taught in the Old Testament. Now, don't misunderstand. There's an awful lot in the Old Testament, several verses in the Old Testament, that predicted that one day Gentiles would be saved and that they would worship Yahweh along with the Jews. But that's not what he's saying here. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 49 talks about this. He's he's talking about the suffering servant who is to come, who now we know is Jesus. And listen to what he says about Jews and Gentiles coming together. This is Old Testament. It says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So that's clear. That's That's in the Old Testament several times. But what he's talking about in Ephesians is much more dramatic than that. What God revealed to Paul about this relationship between believing Jews and Gentiles is that God has established a supernatural union between these two very different groups of people that would make them absolutely equal members of the people of God. No Jew would have believed that. Absolutely equal members of God's people. They would have scoffed at that. That God would form a new humanity, a new human race, made up of Jews and Gentiles who had trusted in Christ. This is glorious. It's unexpected in salvation history. It's a mystery. Paul says three things about this in verse 6, this relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. First, they are fellow heirs. Well, that speaks to the unique inheritance, the shared inheritance that both Jews and Gentiles share as children of God. This eternal inheritance is waiting for both groups of people. Also it says, they're members of the same body. We've looked at this before. Christ is the head of this new body, the church, and the members are Jews and Gentiles. And then he says, this is partakers of the promise, In Christ Jesus through the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles are partakers of the promise. Well that promise may very well include all the promises of God. The promise is back in 315 when he says somebody's going to come and destroy the serpent, or maybe it's the Abrahamic promise, and then Noah and David, and all. It may mean all of that, but we know that it means certainly this, because back in 113 it says, in him you also, who you have, who you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it, we know it means that. Both Jew and Gentiles received in Christ the Holy Spirit. Well, that's Paul's basic reflection in terms of the content of it. That's what he says for these eight verses. But we want to talk about, okay, well, how does that relate to us? How does the personal ministry of Paul's, Paul's time as an apostle How can I tie in to that? Well, the application that I want to focus on is rooted in the fact of what we can learn from this man who God used so mightily. Arguably, Paul was used more mightily, except for Jesus, than any single human being on the planet. He authored half of the New Testament. His teaching on what it is to be saved by grace has brought millions into the kingdom. He brought the gospel to Europe and part of Asia. He's the greatest missionary in the history of the church. So what is there about Paul that made him, by God's grace, the kind of person that God could use so powerfully? Now, again, don't misunderstand. You don't have to achieve a certain level of holiness before God can use you. God used Samson. He was a carnal man. God used a talking donkey. You don't even need to be a human being to be used by God. God can and does use very dull instruments. And we see that again and again in the Bible. But he can do more, and he can do more consistent ministry with a sharp knife than a dull one. And by God's grace, Paul is razor sharp as an instrument of God. Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul knew he was someone that you should be imitating. So, in this digression, digression, where Paul focuses on his ministry, God puts on display part of what it is that made Paul a sharp and very usable instrument of God's grace. Again, this is not about the kind of personality that God uses. This did not have a lot to do with Paul's personality. God uses people of all kinds of different personalities. This is about the kind of character in a person that makes them more readily usable in a remarkable way by God. Let's think briefly about just two truths about Paul that's revealed here. He reveals himself in chapter three. Paul reveals here that he was totally, completely, absolutely dependent upon God for his ministry. This comes screaming off the page in this section where Paul is reflecting on the ministry. And there's two aspects of this dependence. First, Paul sees everything in his life as being completely under the control of Jesus. As he sits in that Roman prison cell, Paul knows Jesus Christ sent him there. For Paul, all of his life was authored and under the control of Jesus. And that meant that he could trust that all things were ultimately for his good and for the good of the kingdom. That really frees you up when you can trust that. It's crucial for us to know as well, if you're in a difficult marriage or you have a difficult boss, make sure you understand Jesus, at least for that moment, sent you there in a marriage for life. You're in his marriage. For you. That means that he will give you grace to glorify him in some way through that marriage. In the job that you work, Jesus is your boss, ultimately. Do you work as if he's your boss, or are you lax in your performance? Living in complete dependence upon Christ means believing that Christ is in charge of and is in control of everything, and that everything you do, every relationship you have, belongs to him and is for his glory. That radically God-centered person is the one God uses powerfully. Everything in Paul's life was about God. A second and related aspect of living in this kind of dependence upon God is in recognizing that in all aspects of your life, your job, your ministry, your parenting, your relationships, for all you do, you need the grace of God. Someone living and ministering dependence upon God has learned not to rely on their own gifts or abilities, not to rely on their past experiences, not to rely on their education or their mentoring. God may very well use those things in your life, but you see them as God's grace to you. Paul saw everything he was and everything he did as expressions of the grace of God to him. We know that we're living more like that when we find ourselves constantly Thankful for what is in our lives, our relationships, our talents, our gifts, our ministries, whatever level of holiness that we have achieved by the grace of God. We're so thankful. This is the way you tell a person who really is dependent upon God, because they're thankful, because everything they have is from God. And that's not just a theological construct for them. That's in their heart. They really do believe that. Paul really did believe that. So if you're a thankful person for all these things in your life, that's a great indication. You're depending on God for those things. And then when it comes, you're like, thank you, God. You did that for me. Finally, and closely related, again, God uses powerfully people who are not impressed with themselves. God uses powerfully people who are not impressed with themselves. Paul saw himself, as we said earlier, the very least of the Apostles, the very least of saints. That's not false humility. He's not just saying that for effect. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul honestly believed he was the very least of the saints. Because of his former life, he knew that he was the very least of, in this case, the Apostles, but he didn't live in a state of self-condemnation over that. Indeed, it gave Paul great joy to be the least of the apostles, because if you're the least of the apostles, then the grace of God is more clearly seen in you. God is glorified more, and that's what Paul was about. Imagine the sheer magnitude of God's grace necessary For a Pharisaic Jew who once hated Christ, who once hated the followers of Christ, to become the apostle of the Gentiles. For a former enemy of the cross to boldly testify to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ before the emperor. Paul's self-understanding and his regular contact with the glory of Christ caused this outwardly incredibly impressive person Paul was a very impressive person. Just when you look at his resume, when you look at what he was able to, this this guy's got it. He's one of the most talented people that ever lived. He never went there. It was all about Jesus. It was all about grace. He was thoroughly unimpressed with himself. Likewise, if we have a biblically accurate understanding of ourselves, we're going to be conscious of two wonders in that old hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I love this verse. It says, Upon that cross of Jesus mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. You don't appreciate the wonders of his glorious love unless you first internalize the obvious truth of your unworthiness. Again, not as a theological truth, but as a reality in your life. Again, the sense of unworthiness is not about self-hatred. It's a sense of wonder, the glorious love of God that is directed to someone as unworthy of it as you, as me. May God give us the grace to know who God is, what he's done for us, and to know who we are and our devastating need of the grace of God for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful first and foremost for Jesus. But we're also grateful for those people that Jesus used mightily and whom we can see Jesus so clearly, like Paul. Because sometimes Jesus just seems a little bit too far out there, but we can relate perhaps more easily with someone who's not God in the flesh. So thank you for Jesus first, but thank you for people like Paul, Father, thank you that we can learn from them about what it is to be a person who you can use in significant ways. Father, help us to take this to heart. Help us to apply it in whatever way we want because God, for your glory and for our joy, we want to be used in significant ways. And Father, we're so grateful that we have the glories of the gospel to share, that you love the world in such a way so that whoever believes... Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, their sins would be wiped away. And Father, if there are people here who haven't trusted in Christ, who are in some way leaning on their own performance to be good enough for you, Father, I pray that you would just by your Spirit convince them of the folly of that and give them grace to trust in you and you alone so that they might know the joy of your salvation. Father, we give all of this to you and pray that Christ would be glorified in our lives in new and better ways.